Hey, welcome to the podcast, Today's Voices of Conservation Science, and I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. This podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher. And today I'm here with Nick Voss, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Nick, how are you doing today? Pretty great, Chris. Happy to be here. Excellent. Um, we want to start off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. So I am a first-year graduate student at uh, Montana State University, as said, and uh, I'm originally from Tenafly, New Jersey, which is definitely a state that most people are not from in this area. So it's definitely been a bit of a journey, my slow motion move west. I got a little bit of a taste of it when I was a kid, a little more when I was a teenager going out with parents, and... Uh, after a while, I just kind of realized that this is where I wanted to be, and I was right. So, Tenafly, New Jersey. Yeah. I've never heard of Tenafly, New Jersey. What? That doesn't surprise me. What's the population size of Tenafly, New Jersey? You know, I hesitate to call Tenafly a town even because it's in that part of the tri-state area. It's really suburban sprawl. I mean, it's okay. a three-square-mile chunk of, you know, it's suburbia. So, we've got, last time I checked, around 15,000 people in that area. Mm-hmm. And there's no delineation between where our town starts and the next one ends. And there's so many little ones that uh, one of my colleagues, Ben Shriano, he's from an area that's, I don't know, like 30 or 40 miles from, from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. He'd never heard of my town before. <laughs> I, haven't, I hadn't even heard of his town until I started running against people there. That's kind of interesting to think of that because you would expect that in Montana, the size, you know, how big Montana <laughs> is. But, yeah, they're practically neighbors, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so... You got your undergraduate degree. Did you get that in the state of Montana? I did. Yeah. I went to the University of Montana, got okay. a undergrad degree in wildlife biology with an aquatics emphasis, and was really happy with the program there. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, they do have a great program. Mm-hmm. Uh, what compelled you to pursue a career in conservation? Well, one thing that definitely from a really early age, I think, pushed me in that direction was my, my upbringing. I come from a family of career biologists, and yet I was raised in suburban New Jersey. I feel like to a certain extent, my parents never really forgave themselves for that. So <laughs> essentially, every, every opportunity they got every summer for at least a month, typically, we would head out for a hardcore car camping trip. You know, first when I was very young, we started local, Adirondacks, Appalachians, that kind of area. But by the time I was older, we were driving out all the way to Colorado, all the way to Arizona. I mean, four or five days in the car, all the way from New Jersey. Did you guys ever come to Montana? We never did. Never huh. did. Huh. That's yeah. interesting because you're here now. And, and, and it's funny because you talk to a lot of people that have moved to Montana. I was yeah, actually yeah. talking to somebody today at the DMV. I had to renew my license and, she, and she's from California. And she mm-hmm. said... Uh, uh, I said, well, how, what brought you here? And she says, well, we used to vacation here all the time, and mm-hmm. now I just loved it, and so I moved here. Yeah, it's a funny thing now that you mentioned that. I never thought about that, yeah. but Montana was one of the few states that we never actually hit. But uh, going back to the initial question, I suppose, it was really obvious to me, even from a really young age. I remember coming back from camping out in the woods for days and days and days, and suddenly I'm sitting in my yard again, you know, with the, you know, the concrete all around me and my <laughs> friends mostly on their N64s, GameCubes, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I'm just kind of standing there. And <laughs> it, it, it didn't take very long for me to realize that, you know, this area, you know, everywhere in North America was totally pristine wilderness at one point. And here we are in the present day with all of that gone. Yeah. And it made me sad. 
I remember thinking that even when I was six and seven, you know, running around trying to find the one patch of forest that I could walk to, which was the country club, which I illegally trespassed on nonstop. (laughs) And, you know, I had to get my fix and thinking about what happened to the land and how we could attempt to remediate that, you know, within the confines of society as it is today. I think it logically progressed to where I am today, essentially, just a concern for the state of nature. Yeah, that's that's very good. And to be thinking about that when you're six years old is amazing. <laughs> it's easy to think that when yeah. you come right from <clears throat> So you kind of touched on it. I, I think I know where this is going to go. Um, and, but who, maybe what, was instrumental in really getting you interested in conservation and nature? You touched on your parents, and I'm mm-hmm, guessing that mm-hmm. was maybe the driving force. Yeah, um, I would say it to a certain extent is the family business biology. Mm -hmm. But my parents are very much a different type of species of biologist, I would say. Conservation for me, it was, it was my calling for sure. Um, I definitely, my parents were very careful to not push me in the direction of where they went and where, what my grandfather did as well. It kind of just, it, it naturally flowed, I would say, but certainly I didn't have any major cultural obstacles in the family to that kind of thing. Right. Right. So, Let's transition here to your research. So sure. um, we got a good feel for your background and, and why you're interested in conservation. And you went and got an undergraduate degree at the University of Montana in Missoula. And now you're in Bozeman, Montana at Montana State University. And, That's right. Uh, what are you working on? I study non-native smallmouth bass in the Yellowstone River. It's a, it's a really interesting, and I feel pretty lucky to study it because there are non-native species there, and really very little is known about them. The Yellowstone River as a whole is, in popular culture, considered a trout river. There's a lot of emphasis culturally, economically, recreationally on the upper sections of the river where people fish for Yellowstone cutthroat trout, brown trout, that kind of thing. And the lower river, at least in the culture of Bozeman, has been neglected, I think, to a certain extent, and... Now that smallmouth are starting to nose their way into the upper river, there's suddenly a lot of concern for their supposed impacts, what might occur in the future with regards to the trout population. So I'm in an interesting and I think pretty fortunate position where my my work is, it's definitely needed and there's very little that's been done so far. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of room to, to grow and there's just a lot of questions that are, questions that are unanswered, which is mm-hmm. fun for me. Yeah, no, that's great. What about... You said impacts on 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 trout. I think is is what you said. What what are those impacts? I mean, it, maybe you can crystal ball it. I know you're still in the throes mm-hmm. of your of your study, but that's the concern, right? There's right. some kind of negative consequence of smallmouth bass on trout. I'm mm-hmm. guessing, but what, do you know what those mechanisms are? What you, maybe you're hypothesizing what those mechanisms might be? Sure. Um, well, I first want to point out that there's obviously it's very difficult to compare what we've observed in other systems to a new system. There's a classic saying, there's no control in ecology. Every system is different. You can never assume what's occurring. But that said, smallmouth have been known to prey on and compete with salmonids like trout and salmon in other rivers in the Northwest, for example. So there's definitely concern and there's precedent for that occurring in rivers like the Yellowstone, which warrants further investigation. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what's guiding your research is 
you're looking through the literature and you're finding some of these other uh, case histories, so to speak, and mm-hmm. and that's helping formulate kind of where you guys are focused. Because I mean, it's it's a it's a broad question, right? There's yeah. a lot of different ways you <laughs> could, you could go, but you are focusing in on a few things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what are the impacts is essentially an endless question, especially right, right. when you consider food webs and all the intricate mm-hmm. dynamics and stuff. Yeah, and so I, sh- I was hoping that maybe you could develop a, uh, for the uh, listener just a little bit of a couple of the key things you guys are looking at. Sure. Um, one thing that's completely unknown and obviously uh, a huge factor in all this is what these bass are eating, mm-hmm. especially as they go through different life stages. Obviously, a bass that's 20, 30 millimeters long, you know, even a couple inches they're not going to be able to have the same impacts that an adult does at the same time. Their diets are very different depending on their size. So that's one of the major goals of my project is to determine what their diets are and how that changes, not just as they go through their life history, but also uh, how that diet changes as you move up and down the river, location to location. So so what does a small smallmouth bass eat in other systems? What do they typically eat? It's interesting because they're considered opportunistic feeders. I mean, they have a rep for being piscivorous, meaning they eat fish, because that's what anglers typically catch them on, you know, rapalas, you know, fish-shaped mm-hmm. lures. Mm-hmm. They're actually primarily insectivorous. Uh, the majority of their diet in a lot of systems uh, consists of crayfish. That's something that they really seem to target. And they also, there's that potential for competition again. They also, eat a lot, they also eat a lot of the insects that trout typically eat. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, a question that definitely needs to be answered on the Yellowstone because we really can't make any assumptions at all when it comes to that. Right. And yeah, I was going to mention crayfish because I grew up in uh, the Midwest and did some yeah. smallmouth bass fishing and we were always using the crayfish lure and that seemed mm-hmm. to work work pretty well. I, I just know that for competition to occur, there has to be also a limitation in resources and that can be very difficult mm-hmm. to assess as well. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing you guys are, like you said, you're in this system that nobody knows anything about with mm-hmm. respect to uh, smallmouth bass. So just starting on, Hey, what are they eating? Some of the basic ecology of smallmouth bass in yeah, the Yellowstone. Exactly. It's an interesting yeah. project that way where there's so little known that really my study is what it's doing is establishing a basement of knowledge from which we can, build more, you know, answer more specific, more targeted questions in any direction that we choose. So the main questions that my study aims to answer is where are they, what controls their distribution? And by answering that, we hope to see what their distribution might be in the future, the influence of things Mm -hmm. like climate change and again, what they're eating. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I'm here with Nick Voss, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology, and you just heard uh, that he's working on smallmouth bass in the Yellowstone River in Montana. So, Nick, if you could kind of, again, think about a crystal ball and your project, and you're coming to the end of the project or or um, and maybe even thinking about a future project that somebody's working on, what would be the best thing that you could discover for smallmouth bass in the Yellowstone? The best thing that I could discover is that they're really not preying on trout at all, which is the primary concern, especially amongst the public, and that they're really just another insectivore in a system in places that trout typically don't inhabit. Because there's a key difference there that I haven't brought up that is that trout are typically cold water species, Bass are somewhere in between that and warm water. 
So they definitely the, the smallmouth bass, the smallmouth yeah, bass yeah, specifically. Yeah. So they occupy different thermal niches, meaning that smallmouth are typically in the lower system, though they are appearing to creep up the system. Mm-hmm. And trout have typically inhabited the middle and upper river and appear to be receding. So there's a real question of causality there. Are trout simply moving up because of because of the water warming and smallmouth are filling the void? Mm-hmm. Or is there a serious competitive interaction there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- um, a lot of the 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 projects that I've been involved in always have some kind of um, what we might call hurdle or even graduate school has uh, a lot of hurdles just in, in life in general. And I like to ask our, our um, guests about hurdles that they've experienced or that they're still struggling with um, <laughs> as far as graduate education goes or, or, or their research. Have, do you experience any hurdles? So my biggest personal hurdle, I would say, is the wanderlust. I got that hard. It's so hard to focus on on school sometimes, especially in such a beautiful area. Things are getting warmer. The snow's starting to melt. You know, there's a serious yep. call to just ditch it all and run away to the mountains, you know. But, uh, you know, this project is is really meaningful for me, and I do enjoy the work. So, you know, you just got to bring yourself back to home every yeah. once in a while. Well, you did, you did, uh, you did run away to the mountains. So you got that I part. Did, yeah. I did. I did. Check that box off. Yeah, there's that's... always more. There's always more to see. Um, last question here is, uh, what is your favorite animal, plant or both? Oh, I'm so bad at favorites, Chris. <laughs> they always, I never see them as mutually exclusive, you know? So my answer is typically change with the seasons. I'm in a bit of a winter mood right now since it, it continues to snow, even though it's mid-April. This is a little <laughs> odd. But uh, I think snowy owls are really, really cool. I watched a little documentary on those recently. And uh, if I could extend that to a favorite plant, the the really high alpine plants are really fascinating to me. So I'd always, I would very much love to see a bristlecone pine. That's definitely something that's still on my list. Yeah, I don't even know what that is, but it's uh, it's it sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Snowy owl, I'm up there with you on that one. I'd like to see one. I'd like to get some photographs mm-hmm. of one. Yeah, I haven't seen one of those either, I don't think. I mean, zoos don't really count, do yeah, they? No, yeah, zoos don't count. Nick, uh, thank you for the time today and chatting with me, and I wish you the best of uh, luck in your studies at Montana State University and your research on non-native smallmouth bass in the Yellowstone River. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please spread the word about this podcast.